morning. Okay, uh, I'm back. I'm almost done with the fall softball ministry. It's been going really well. I got one more week, and then you're stuck with me. But uh, not next week, but the week after. I know they already told you we're going to have a very special service. Do not miss that one. Uh, we have a lot of stuff we're going to fill you in on. I think it's going to be a real blessing. But today we're going to continue on in the book of First Corinthians. And um, I love these two books, First and Second Corinthians, and we will go through both of them. There is so much that's applicable in these two books. Um, now, Scotty got us started a few weeks ago, and he introduced us to the author and the audience. And the author was the Apostle Paul, and the audience was a, a, a new church in the city of Corinth. He described uh, Corinth as a sinful city, a city that uh, had, by its very culture, had a very uh, big shortage of morals. That's a nice way I can put that. But they desperately lacked in them. Uh, and it was full of all kinds of pagan and perverse religions, some of which, if I told you about, you wouldn't believe me. They're so nasty. So I'm not going to tell you. Um, but um, and most of those religions and most of those uh, those worshiping practices did not like Christianity. They didn't like them at all. So the, the godless mentality of that culture had made its way into the Corinthian church, and he had to deal with a lot of that. Uh, but the godless Corinthian mentality, in my opinion, kind of reminds me of us. And I, I hate to say that because, you know, I love my country. But, uh, you know, as I'm preparing this, these things are coming to my mind. And the direction this country is headed reminds me of where Corinth is. And that scares me, in a way. Because, you know, our country has been ridiculing believers for decades. And calling them ignorant and, and um, intolerant and foolish. And the only way you're considered wise is if you see God as a myth and His Word as a work of fiction then they might consider the church somewhat wise, right? And uh, they really promote that the people who trust in, and the people who trust in power and wealth and wisdom, worldly wisdom, those are the ones they want us to look up to. They don't want us to pay any attention to the spiritual. So I just think it's, I think it's pretty bad that we are a society based uh, one nation under God that's telling you to trust in science and to trust in wealth and to trust in power and those who do are wise. I'm just not going to subscribe to that mentality, and it's my hope that none of you do either. But today Paul's going to reveal what true wisdom looks like according to God, uh, and he's going to reveal how the wisdom of the world simply is the wisdom of fools, which is the title of today's message. Let's jump right in. Now, before we get started, we're going to start in verse 18, but before we get started, I want to explain something about the Greek culture, which is this, this area was heavily influenced by it. <laughs> Preach it. And... Uh, so the Greek culture was driven, was, was heavily influencing the, the, the Corinthian uh, church in that area. So the Greek culture, they, they really sought after wisdom. Okay, the Greek culture was uh, the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of philosophy and the pursuit of wisdom. That was their God. And they felt like the wisest people, the ones who knew the most, the greatest philosophers, those were kind of their Messiah-type figures. That's what they put their confidence and their faith in. They were raised to trust in knowledge and science and philosophy over everything else. It was very self-sustained type of a faith. They had faith in their knowledge, what it was. So they were raised to trust in the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of God. And unfortunately, some of that also, uh, that culture and that mentality found its way into the Corinthian church. So some in the church, in the Corinthian church, started trying to mix their worship of knowledge and their worship uh, of philosophy in with their worship of God. And God is not, uh, he, does, he refuses to be a roommate with anything else, let's put it that way. So it just wasn't going to work. He wasn't going to allow those two to be uh, mixed. So Paul decided that uh, he wanted to make sure that he made, drew a very fine line between these two so everyone could see that there was a difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. 
Okay, that being said, let's jump into 1 Corinthians 1.18. It says, For the word of the cross is what? Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, it's kind of interesting because in, in verse 18 in the Greek, it literally translates the message of the cross is foolishness, right? And the word foolishness in the Greek is moria, and it means nonsense. But the, the ironic thing is the word moria in the Greek is where we get the English word moron from. So if your name's Maria, it's awful close. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to get emailed by 50 Marias. I was just kidding. No, but... Um, uh, Maria is where we get the word moron from. And that's not a mistake. I'll explain that here in a minute. And Because that's generally what the unbelieving world thought Jesus' followers were, the morons. Right? And what Paul was trying to say is that he was trying to word it like this. Uh, those with a worldly mentality think that only morons would believe in the message of the cross. That's basically how that translates, which kind of puts things in context. Because I'll be honest with you, playing the devil's advocate here, I can't believe I just said that in the pulpit, but playing the devil's advocate here, um, I kind of see how people in that culture would struggle hearing the gospel and grasping the gospel for the first time when they were raised to worship worldly wisdom. That had to be tough for them. See, all of us have an idea of, of the gospel. All of us have an idea of God and Jesus. We were raised in a country that, that still somewhat promotes it. But these people were raised to worship worldly wisdom, and this was going to be hard for them to grasp. So let's look at this from a perspective. I want you to turn your mind on and pretend that you weren't raised with it. And imagine that you were taught that, that your salvation lied in the hands of how much wisdom you could acquire, how much, uh, how much you know, philosophy you could learn, just how wise you could be. That was kind of their God. So let's listen to this from their perspective. So when we tell them, all God and all man came together in the form of a human baby named Jesus. A lot of them are off the ship right there. Right? They're done. Right? And it says that the baby was born of a virgin and lived a completely sinless life. The other quarter that hadn't left, left there. Right? And then, although he grew up a carpenter here, he also taught the word of God with authority. And he also performed amazing miracles that only the Messiah that was prophesied for Israel could perform. Yet, Israel, his own people, crucified him because they were religious zealots and jealous of his authority. See how this isn't all tying together if you don't understand all the background? It had to be a little bit of a struggle. Then, after his crucifixion and his death, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and in three days he rose again. Okay, now think of the struggle that they're coming with this. And after his resurrection, he remained on earth to train his disciples. And he trained his disciples how to teach people to believe, how to influence people and, and bring them to Christ, how to teach them to grow closer to Christ. And then when that was over, he ascended to heaven in their presence and vowed to return. Now, if you were raised to believe in just wisdom and knowledge and science and the things you could prove and write on paper, that would be a struggle. That'd be a struggle, right? So, you know, it was hard... This is not going to be an easy ministry uh, to push through. But despite their culture, Paul said, listen, they're worth it. It's worth making sure that this doctrine that's coming from these pagan religions and all this knowledge and science doesn't infiltrate the church and destroy it. So he was willing and committed to teaching them any better. So he wanted to make sure he warned them of how serious it was if they were going to reject God for wisdom. So you, there's a lot coming up here. Now notice he said that the message was only foolishness to those who are perishing. That's who it's foolishness to. Now, perishing is the Greek word apolemi, and it means to destroy or to lose. Both those definitions are important, right? And those who are perishing could technically refer to believers or unbelievers. 
by the way that word's used throughout the New Testament. Uh, let me give you, for example, um, uh, unbelievers. If unbelievers refuse the message of the cross, they were going to perish or be destroyed and not have their opportunity to have eternity with Christ. That's the destruction that falls in the perishing definition for unbelievers. But believers, on the other hand, believers could abandon the message. Now, don't email me and ask me if I believe in losing your salvation. I do not. There, no matter what I sound like, there is never going to be a time I ever mean that because the Bible won't teach it. Okay, but here's the thing. Believers can get away from the gospel. They can get away from the message that delivered them. And if we're all honest, we've all been there at least at some degree, one time or another, right? And when you start to get away, remember the other definition to perishing was destroyed or to lose. What happens to believers when they start drifting away from God, and this has happened to me, and it probably will again, and I'm sure it's happened to you, is that you start to lose that closeness and fellowship with God. You know what I mean? Have you ever been to that point where you just can't feel Him anymore? Maybe something has distracted you and you got angry at somebody and, and didn't let it go, or maybe, you know, something happened, you know, within the church that bothered you or whatever the case is, and you start getting mad, and the next thing you know, the farther and farther away you get from Him, you stop reading, you stop worshiping, and it just, you can't feel Him. You know what I mean? I mean, when you pray, you feel like it's just empty words, right? And when you read, it's like it can't penetrate because there's that sin blocking you and God. That's what he's talking about. It could have been either of the two. Right? It could have been either of the two, but both of them he wanted to warn. Right? Now, but he said, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, there's a lot of people get mixed up here. The moment you believe, you're not going to get any more saved. Just so you know that. Okay, I want to make sure you understand. Getting baptized is the first step of discipleship. It doesn't make you any more saved. You're just as saved. If you believe and were on your way to the pool to get baptized, trip, fall, and died, I know that's glorious thing to say you'd still go to heaven you're never going to get more saved that's not what he's talking about you know when it says to those of us who are being saved it's not talking about earning a degree of salvation but what he is talking about when he says that the greek phrase who are being saved is from one word and it's sozo and it means to be delivered okay so those who are being saved are the faithful who are being and will be delivered and when i say are being listen if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, how how many times does God deliver you in a day? In a week? In a month? Now maybe all you guys are sinless, but I'm telling you what, I find myself in trouble a time or two every 10 minutes, and I feel like there are times when, when I need God's hand to pull me out of where I am. I need God hand, God's hand to sometimes discipline me and put me where I need to be. There are times that I have had to depend on God and I feel ashamed afterwards because I didn't depend on him right up front, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But he always comes through. And we're and when I say being delivered every day, you know what I'm talking about if you've been saved any amount of time. How many have been delivered from addictions, from uh, how many people have been delivered from depression and things like that? Who are, they're all real things that can really hurt you. But believers can depend on him to be constantly delivering us. And also, when it's talked about those of us who are being saved, we are looking forward to the culmination of our being delivered, and that happens the day he comes and takes us all home. So not only are we promised to be delivered from all the snares of the enemy, and there are a ton of them. Honestly, this sounds terrible, but if you're not being challenged by the enemy, be worried, because that's just what he does, right? But not only does he deliver us from those, we have the promise of that final delivery, and I think that's a lot what Paul was talking about here. But 
Have you noticed the world is still trying to convince people today to trust in worldly wisdom over God's wisdom? And I, you know, it really troubles me. And I try not to think about it, but I, it's just surrounding me. Have you noticed popular media? They don't mention faith or God unless they're going to mock or demean it. I don't know about you guys. I struggle even watching TV anymore. Every new television show, whether it's a sitcom or a drama, has something either immoral or something that's, you know, demeaning to God or to religion. I mean, it's just, has anybody else noticed that? Is it just me? Now, the only thing I really watch is what God in, in, intended for men to watch and women, and that's sports. God intended for that to be watched, you know? So, um, especially the Steelers, because it builds your faith, not throwing stuff at the TV. Just saying. An Ohio State sweep went out. You know, there's another sermon. Anyway, no. But I can't even watch that stuff. I can't watch regular TV anymore because I get so sick of seeing the mocking voices about faith. You know, and it's not just popular media that's attacking faith. If you look, it's all around us. I mean, social media is attacking faith like crazy. Uh, politics and the government in general also constantly attack faith. I mean, the world we live in right now, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but is it just me or is, are we getting more divided? And are we hating more people? It's unbelievable to me. I mean, worldly wisdom is driving people to choose sides and hate each other. That's what happens when you follow the ways of the world. I mean, full of division. And you know what's really driving the division? The very same thing. Politics, social media, they're all driving it. Because people are so desperate for affirmation for somebody on social media that we're going to transform into what they want us to be. Drives me absolutely crazy. You know, I don't, I don't understand how believers are allowing their lives to be shaped by politics and by social media. I don't get that. See, we're Christians. That means, you know, that word was given as an insult, that title. Do you know that? You know how we say somebody's a wannabe? Well, they, they saw these people trying to live like Christ, and they go, oh, look, it's a little Christ. But basically, Christ wannabes, translation, Christian. Okay? So... From its inception, the word Christian means we are trying to have our worldview, we are trying to have our character shaped by the Word of God and shaped by the example left by Christ. That's who's supposed to form our character and shape us as, as men and women of God. That's what it's supposed to be. But in our time, we allow Hollywood to shape us. We allow uh, Washington to shape us, social media to shape us. Listen, how did we get here? For crying out loud, there are people who get their news from TikTok. A well-known, reliable source for accuracy in media, by the way. Never doctors' videos are nut in. Just saying. It's just crazy. And I just can't believe that how many people in this day and age, even Christians, would rather be identified for their political leanings or their social issues and their social passions than they would be to be identified by as a believer. I just don't understand how we got there. And that's where we are. That's why this book means so much to me and that and many other reasons. But that's where we're at right now. And here's the thing, you know, I believe that people say, hey, well, the reason I'm involved in social issues and politics is I care about people. Well, Christians, if you care about people, how about not wasting your time with politics and social issues? And how about you put your focus on sharing the gospel with those people you care so much about? Because everything you tell them and do for them that's not from God is temporary. But when you share the gospel, that will follow them for eternity. If you want to care for them, care about that. Because I'll be honest with you, the only leader 
that I'm going to get 100% behind is the one who can make change and promise to make change and deliver, and that's Jesus. That's the only one I'm going to worry about. The rest of it is, is ridiculous. I'll be honest with you. I'm not saying there's not a need for awareness and social issues, but in my opinion, the greatest social issue we have in this country today is our society's need for Jesus. The greatest social issue we have. We need to get back to that. And you know what? A lot of the hatred and stuff, when you get your mind focused on Jesus, goes away. It goes away because you can't allow him to be in charge of your life and allow hate to be prevalent in your life at the same time. That Those roommates won't last. That does not work. Okay, now... I could preach on that forever. But now, uh, I love what Paul said next, which is actually a quote from Isaiah 29. He said, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So Paul, again, wrote this to highlight the difference between godly and, and earthly wisdom. And here's kind of what happened. In Isaiah's time, there was one nation that everybody feared. It was the Assyrians. And they were relentless. They were cruel. They were torture people when they captured them. When they would take over a country, they would decimate it. I mean, they had no care for human life. They were brutal and they were powerful. So Israel, the children of God, should have depended on who for their protection? God, I kind of gave you the answer to the question, right? But instead, they said, let's, let's follow worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says we need to make an alliance with another country so we can be bigger than the Assyrians. So they decided to make an alliance with that loving, peaceful nation they had such a great history with called Egypt. Because the Lord knows they never had any trouble out of them. And they thought, well, worldly wisdom says if there's two of us, we're bigger than them, they won't attack us. So they made an alliance with a pagan nation who could care less about God. Right? Needless to say, the worldly wisdom didn't work. It did not protect them. And eventually they ended up doing what they should have done in the first place giving it to God, and God delivered him. So, I mean, it just goes to show you uh, that kind of wisdom doesn't, it may make sense when we hear it, but worldly wisdom is never working the will of God, right? And I'll be honest with you, a lot of times I've seen people totally abandon the word of God and go to what the world tells them to do, even Christian people, and it never ends good. It just never, ever ends good, right? So now anyway, so like Israel and, and, and Egypt, you know, when you decide to trust anything but God, it's going to backfire on you, and that's something I think they learned here. But one thing he was trying to prove here was that the wisdom of mankind is never going to add up to the wisdom and power of God. Now, in verses 20 through 25, Paul takes a closer look at the power of God versus the power of man. I'm trying to move through this. 1 Corinthians 1, 20, 21. Okay, pay careful attention here. It says, where is the wise man? <laughs> I bet people are saying that in Washington all the time. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? You know, whenever I hear debater of this age, I'm going to throw this in for free. Have you ever watched CNN or Fox News? Yeah, I wouldn't either. But anyway, they're always debating and arguing and fighting. I'm like, I thought they, you know, the word news in there meant you were actually going to report on something. It's just, anyway, that's free. Anyway, uh, where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, so Paul asked a question here. He said, where is the wise man, where is the scribe, uh, and the debater of this age? And he asked that for a reason, because those were actually descriptive terms describing the enemies that they were dealing with and the, and the enemy mindsets they were dealing with in Corinthians. For instance, when he said, where is the wise man, he was referring to the Greeks. 
because the Greeks were the ones that thought wisdom was God. You know, their wisdom meant more than anything. And then he said, where's the scribe? And I think this is funny. A scribe is someone who copies something on paper, writes something down, right? The dictation, things like that. Well, he was talking about the Jews when he said the scribe. Because the Jews loved to write down rules and follow them. They loved to say, here are the rules, I'm better at them than you. So when he talked about the scribes, he's talking about them. When he talked about the disputer of this age, he was talking about both of them because they both loved to be right. You know what I mean? Now, I'll be honest with you. Have you ever been in a debate with somebody where they didn't really care to learn anything, they just wanted to crush you? Anybody ever been in that debate? So you've met some of my family. But they, here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is how they were. They were rigid. They weren't going to bend. They just loved to debate. But the Jews and the Greeks both placed their faith in a different, uh, in different forms of worldly wisdom. But they're both still worldly wisdom, right? So Paul was saying that wisdom couldn't be found in the, you know, the strict religion of the Jews, following rules. You're not going to find God that way. You're not going to find God by intellectualism and showing how much more you know than everybody else. You're not going to find Him that way. You know, if you're going to find God, you're going to find Him through faith and a desire to know Him. That's how you're going to know Him. It's not going to be like this. You know what I mean? So, listen, here's the thing. The wise men wouldn't listen, so there was no hope for them. The scribe wouldn't listen, so there was no hope for them. He said, listen, I shared the message with you, but if you're too smart for it, I'm more than happy to share it with people who will listen and will take it in and be changed by it. And that's what he was saying here. He wanted to make sure that they weren't just trying to get you know, support of the world. They really wanted to know God, and if they wanted to know God, he was willing to share it with them. Now, here's where it kind of gets neat. This is a, a saying I heard somebody say one time, because, I, listen, I don't know if you guys realize this, but I, I'm not a big fan of a lot of pastors, and that's terrible to say that. But the reason is, I think a lot of times, church leaders get caught up in themselves. You know what I mean? And as soon as you think it's about you, we've got a problem, right? Well, I went to a pastor's conference, which I am never going to do again, unless it's a good one. It has to be really good, though. And everybody there was talking about their education and how awesome it was. And I'm like, okay, all right. So this guy gets up there, and he's ripped. I'll explain why I said that here in a minute. Come to find out, he's a retired Navy SEAL. Right? So it makes sense. And he became a, a preacher, and he walks up and smiled, and that's the only smile we got out of that man. He turns an overhead around, which just dated the heck out of me. You guys are going, what's an overhead? I'm like, it was a form of, never mind. Anyway, he turns the overhead around, and he starts writing on it. And he's writing in Greek. I'm like, okay. And he looks up, and he goes, yes. I'm writing in Greek, and if you're a pastor here and you can't read that, shame on you. And the guy sitting beside me was an author of children's books. He leans over and he goes, who is this guy so mad at? And I go, I don't know, but don't get me in trouble. Shut up. Through that whole message, it was nothing but anger and bitterness and intellectualism, and look how much more I know than you. Has anybody ever gone to a service or listened to a service, and they tried to bury you in big words? When you left, the only thing you know is that there's a Jesus, but I evidently I'm too dumb to find him because I didn't understand anything that guy said. Anybody ever been there? Drives me crazy. I always tell him, listen, nobody cares if you're smart. They care if you know Jesus. They want to meet him. How about you share that? But this is what I felt like. He was trying to intellectualize the whole thing, and anybody who couldn't be on his level of intellect, he thought was an idiot, and he made you aware of that. Right? And after it was over, I had to ask because I have morbid curiosity. I said, so how many people are in your church? He said, 30. I'm like, hmm, 
not for long, but yeah, I mean, intellectualism, so I, that, that's what made me think of this, of this uh, saying, it's been said many times by many different people, so I'm not going to credit anybody, but it says, no one was ever led to Jesus through worldly wisdom and intellectualism, only through the calling of the Holy Spirit and a willingness to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross will someone be led to him. That's what it boils down to. Listen, worldly wisdom might impress a lot of people, but it doesn't impress God. Now, I love how Paul explains what both the Jews and the Greeks were seeking for deliverance. Look at this, verse 22. He said, For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. So the Jews always wanted proof in some supernatural sign. Right? That's just the way they were. They liked dreams and visions and, you know, you know, magician type stuff. And Jesus shows up doing all that. Healing people, feeding the 5,000, doing all these things, miraculously walking on water, calming storms with his voice. But they rejected him. They were seeking after a sign, but they were seeking after more than that. See, he wasn't the version of a Messiah they wanted. Right? The sign they wanted was someone who would come like Saul, the first king they ever chose. Big, good-looking, basically Mosley, you know, um, smart. That just kicked the Mosley's off. No, smart. And someone who was a warrior and who would come in and lay waste to all their enemies and set them up as the reigning power in the region. That's what they were looking for. And instead, they got this man who was humble and was not good-looking. And he was preaching love and peace and faith, and that was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. They wanted the kind of Messiah they dreamed in their mind, the kind of Messiah God never promised. That's what they were looking for. So when they saw this Messiah, a carpenter's son, someone who didn't have any money, wasn't head and shoulders above everybody, wasn't great looking, didn't go to a great rabbinical school, it offended them to think that would be their Messiah. That's how the preaching of the cross offended them. They could not imagine their Messiah being someone willing to let someone crucify him. They couldn't even imagine that, right? Now, the Greeks, on the other hand, they, they sought salvation through wisdom. They wanted salvation through wisdom and through knowledge and all that stuff. And so, when God comes in with his son, he comes to them teaching love, and he didn't have this great degree and everything, and they couldn't imagine that anybody would follow a poor carpenter's son who allowed himself to get killed. They just couldn't imagine that. And it was offensive to them to think that they would have to admit they were wrong and surrender to someone who was murdered. It was tough for them. They thought the wisdom of the world was where salvation was at. So they trusted in that. And that's what got them in trouble because here's the thing we always remember. This world is not, it's under the control of the enemy. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 4.3. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? perishing, uh, in whose case the God of this world, notice it's small g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, right? And because of that, because it wasn't going to be about them and their intelligence and what they knew and their philosophies, it offended them. Oh, you want me just to believe? So I have nothing to do with it? I'm out. That's why the Greeks were offended by it. They didn't want anything to do with it. Now, the truth is, God's Word offends all of us at some time, and here's how I'm going to prove it. How many people here have ever been listening to a sermon and go, oh my gosh, he's talking about me? Raise your hand. How many people have ever had their butt kicked in a sermon? Be honest, raise your hand. <laughs> okay. I just want you to know something. It happens to me before it happens to you. 
So there's nothing worse than preparing a message and getting the beat down of my life, knowing that what it's talking about in there is me. So the way I look at it is, misery loves company. When he lays it on me, I'm laying it on you. Right? But here's the thing. I mean, we all get offended by the word. I've had people come up to me after church and say, all right, who told you? And I go, told me what? You know. I'm like, I really don't. You know. You were looking right at me. I'm like, listen, no offense, but I didn't even know you were sitting out there. You shook my hand. I'm ADHD. I forgot you three seconds later. Right? And they like I'm sitting at home going, who can I preach on today? Let me see. Let me find someone's life. I, no. You know what? The Word of God is offensive sometimes. It calls you out right where you are. Anybody ever been doing something wrong and you're like trying to ignore it and no matter where you open the Bible, it comes to that? And you turn the radio on, I'm going to listen to Christian radio and somebody's preaching about that or singing a song about how you're wrong. You know, it's just, that's just the way it is. The Word of God is offensive to all of us. But here's the way I look at it. Any kind of healing requires a little discomfort. If you get a cut, if you don't use the right medicine to be healed, it can turn into infection and even kill you. Let me put it to you this way. How many people, I'm going to date myself again. When we were kids, you didn't wear helmets on bicycles. If you did, you got beat up. I'm not against it. Buy helmets for your kids. Be safe. Elbow pads. You go. We didn't. And we set up ramps and jumped 55-gallon drums. You know how that was going to work out, right? We would have some of the most colossal wrecks and be bleeding all over the place, and here would come your parents. And my mom would come out with two of the biggest torture tools known to mankind, alcohol and mercurochrome. Oh, how many people know about it? Raise your hand. Oh, preach. Here we go. All that is is alcohol liquefied with something else in it. I think it's iodine, and it's designed to stick and burn forever. So they'd come over and say, honey, I got this. I'm like, no, it's not bad. It's somebody else's blood. I see it pouring out. And she'd wipe it and then dump alcohol on it and mid-scream, pat the alcohol and rub that mercurochrome on which made me scream even more, right? But in all honesty, it did heal me. I think you could use that stuff to make Al-Qaeda talk, but outside of that, the medicine hurt, but it healed me. It's like when you're sick. There's always that person who says, oh, I don't do nothing about my sickness, I'm tough. Yeah, you're going to be tough and outrageously sick if you don't do something about it. When we're sick, they always want to give us medicine, and medicine is what cures the sickness. When we were kids, maybe it's because I was a kid, but they had shot needles that long. They kept in a sheet, right? And like Merlin, they <laughs> walk away, leave it there, and then come back, right? Hurt, but it healed you. Or they'd give you the medicine that didn't taste bad. It was cherry-flavored. I'm like, it's cherry-flavored dog vomit. It's awful. But you had to take it if you're going to feel good, right? It was uncomfortable, but it did promote healing. But listen, when you're out of the will of God, when your ways, your likes, and your wants don't line up with God, you have a spiritual wound that might be uncomfortable to dress. When you're sick, you need medicine to be healed. When you're out of the will of God, you are spiritually sick. And the medicine you need might make you uncomfortable. It's Jesus saying, this has to stop. You see what I mean? Sometimes you've got to be uncomfortable if you're going to be healed. 
It's the same exact thing. Okay? Now, it's tough, but we're all going to be offended by the Word of God. It's just going to happen. So next, Paul discussed uh, those who embrace the message of the cross. I love this. 1 Corinthians one twenty four. It says, But to those who are the called, underscore that, called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because of the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, there's this divine power that accompanies embracing God's word and applying it that I can't really describe to you. But when you are in that time frame where you are in God's will, when things are, when you and God are, are clicking, there's this feeling I can't really describe. You're confident. You're bold. You're, you can stand up to anything or anybody because you know he's got your back. I wish I could share that feeling, but it's one of the greatest feelings that you can have. And people who embrace God's wisdom experience that more than people who don't. I can't tell you how many times God has come through for me when the worldly odds were set against me. I can't tell you. I mean, there were times that I didn't know where my next meal was coming from, and that's not an exaggeration. People just say that sometimes because it sounds really broken down and cool. I was there. And God always stepped up in amazing ways. I can't tell you how many times He stepped in to did things I can't even, I don't have the time to describe to you. He always, always, always has stepped up for me. And I think a lot of that is because when I got saved, I didn't know enough to not just surrender to him and let him be in charge, right? That's how you find him. Now, uh, verse 26, uh, yeah, here we go. Verse 26 through 29, and this is talking about that calling. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that not uh, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but... Uh, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, uh, the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Now, honestly, I think a lot of Christian leaders need to read that passage and remember it. Because a lot of times we, we feel like it's about us. Pastors, teachers, leaders get the feeling that they're what holds it all together. That's dangerous. Let me explain to you who God used to share the message. Fools. That's what he said. To the foolishness of preaching. Right? That's who we are. We are instruments in the hand of the master. There is no room in ministry for arrogant, for conceited, or for the self-inflating narcissist. There's no room for that in ministry. I know leaders that trust more in their degree or their title than their calling. I know a guy who's a preacher, and when he, he got his doctor's degree, and no longer wanted to be called pastor, just doctor. You know, and I'm like, like, what are you going to call him? What do you want to be called? Uh, Chris. You know, I don't understand that. The second it becomes about you, God's out of the picture. The second it's about you, God's out of the picture. And when God's out of the picture, that church will not stand. I've seen so many leaders that always feel like they're the most spiritual and smartest person in the room, when in reality, they're probably the most carnal person in the room because they still have forgotten it is about God, not about them. The moment it becomes about what you can do, what you offer and your abilities, God's out of the picture, and I think we need to remember that. Remember, God chose the humble and the obedient to turn this world upside down. The humble and the obedient. Remember, Jesus was perceived as insignificant. He was perceived as ignorant because he didn't have the right rabbinical training for them to accept his teachings, even though he's healing people, right? He was considered uneducated. And because he wasn't a warrior, they just rejected him. 
But what he did have, they needed, and that was humility and an obedient heart that wanted to see the will of God done, and that's how he changed the world. You think about it, of the 12 original disciples, only one of them was formally educated, and he was a doctor, and that was Luke. And he wasn't a doctor like you go to an MD. He was more like a field medic. I would not let him do surgery on me, right? He could patch up boo-boos. That's about it, right? And the rest of them were blue-collar fishermen and stuff, and God turned the world upside down with them. When the Apostle Paul came on the scene, he was highly educated, highly educated. Some say he spoke up to 17 languages. He was trained under Gamaliel, great philosopher. He had some of the greatest rabbinical training. He was the poster boy for the Jews. He was the next up-and-comer. And they don't like you if you don't have education. Here comes Paul with an education, and he surrenders to God and becomes humble and driven by faith. And you know what they said? Well, now he's known, so he's learned so much, he's went nuts. <laughs> so if you're educated, you lose. If you're not educated, you lose. Here's what it is. If you love God, you lose. That's what the problem was there. Right? So I'm not against education. I'm not against degrees. I'm not against any of that. Get as much education as you can. But always remember something. You're being educated to, to encourage that calling that God has already called you to. David Jeremiah, I had lunch with David Jeremiah a long time ago. And I was like the starry-eyed young preacher. I couldn't believe I was sitting with David Jeremiah. You know? And so I was dying to ask him a question. And we're, I were at Wendy, so I let him eat his chili, you know? And... I said, I got a question. What's the secret to becoming a, a good preacher? I get my notebook out. So I'm ready to handle it. Here's the eight classes you got to take. And I was like, great. I'm taking them now. I'll take more, right? He looked at me and he said, preach. I said, what? He goes, well, if you're called, you're called to preach. And the only way you're going to get better at preaching is preach. I'm like, that's your advice? Preach. He said, son, go out in the woods and preach to the trees. You don't have to preach to. He said, use the calling that you were called with. He said, going to school will not make you a pastor if you're not a pastor when you go in. Right? He said, just preach. And he walked away, and I'm like, I kind of hope you feel better rested than that. You know? But he was right. I, like I said, I'm not against the education. Get all you can. But make sure you're pursuing a calling that God has called you with. You know what I mean? He said, make sure of your calling. Make sure that's what God is calling you do, and if you have that calling, God never calls you to do something He's not going to make you successful. If He calls you, you'll be successful. I don't know why so many people get afraid. They have, God put something on your heart, do it. He put it there because you're going to succeed if you listen. But the enemy's going to whisper in your ear, nobody's going to believe you, and you'll walk away in fear when God was trying to bless you with a calling. Remember that. It's so, so important. Any man, woman that wants to be successful in ministry, all they need to do is be willing to answer the call and let God take the driver's, uh, take the driver's seat, and I'm telling you, he'll fix it. So Paul closed this with a final reminder of, of uh, who we're depend on for wisdom and walk with us. There we go. First Corinthians 1.30. It said, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love what he finishes with here. He's saying, listen, at the end of the day, if you have wisdom, it's godly wisdom if you want to have success. And anything that happens with godly wisdom, he should get the credit for. You know, when I was first got saved, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I mean, literally nothing. Right? I knew about Noah and the Ark. I'd seen the cartoons. But I'll never forget, I mean, it was, I didn't know, I mean, literally, I, I knew absolutely nothing nothing 
but I remember this one story that was read when I first got saved. There was a man named Herod who was speaking, and people said, these are not the words of a man, but of God. And the worms ate him. That was probably a good thing to remember, because if someone compliments me, I, don't, I always say, well, praise God, I appreciate it. People say, why do you always say that? I say, because I don't want to get ate by worms. I want them to know it's all him, not me. If anything's messed up, that's me. Anything's good, that's him. Stay away, worms. You know what I mean? This is basically what he was trying to say. He was trying to say, listen, look for your calling, pursue your calling, and remember anything good that comes out of it, you're just a vessel. God's the one that's performing the goodness. Remember that. And if you remember that, your humility will make you blessed. That's basically what he's trying to close with. I'm going to go ahead and close there. We'll pick up there next week. If you would, please bow your head. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation and it'll be brief. But if you're not sure where you stand with God or you just need prayer, I'm no one's judge. But I want to pray for you, and I do. If you would make eye contact and put your head right back down, bless those people, bless those people. And I'm going to pray. I really do pray for those faces. Bless those people. Bless those people. And if I don't see it, I know the Lord does. Bless those people. And you know, believers, if you're listening or watching online, I, God's got your back. I'll be praying for you too, but... Uh, believers, I say this every week, but we really need to step up. We really need to step up. I want people to see the power of God moving in us so evidently that they can't deny it. That's what I want to see. We have got to stop assimilating what's going on around us and instead try to assimilate those around us to a life of eternal glory with us. We've got to get our priorities to Him. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your mercy and your kindness. And I thank you for your love. I am so thankful that you didn't require we be good enough. I'm so thankful you didn't require we have something to trade because we could never be good enough and we have nothing to give in exchange for the great gift of eternal life. You loved us so much you sent your son to die so that whoever would believe in the work he did would have eternal life. And I am so glad. So if someone here doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, please remove that from them. And let them come to you realizing that you're not asking them to change, you're asking them to believe. You'll take care of the changes. If they make that decision, I pray they contact us, God. But for those of us who are believers, we need to remember why we're here. We are ambassadors of your kingdom. What we say and what we do matters. Give us a passion for our faith and a passion for your wisdom, not the world. We want people to hear you speak when they hear us. See you move when you see us move. We want to be your hands and feet. Use us. And we know the time is short. We just thank you for all that you do. We ask you to keep us safe as we leave here. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray we come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory. We pray where we are. We ask you to please